so this evening I'm speaking on confession, um, but uh, before we get into that, I, I want to just do a quick recap. We are in a sermon series, and there's been five uh, sermons before this one, and I'd, I'd really encourage you to go and listen to those sermons. It, it really makes a big difference. So confession is one part, but prayer is a lot more than that. So we started off with an introduction, and Johan just said, come as you are. Just pray as you are. And then we had a, a, a sermon on adoration, and that was ordering our lives, seeing God first, and that directs us um, with everything else in life. Uh, so, so that was adoration. Contemplate, uh, contemplative prayer. Vera gave us some good tools on how to quiet ourselves and really reflect deeply on, on God. Intercession. Um, Anna taught us that um, history belongs to the intercessors that uh, you need to pray for, for others, that it makes a difference. And then Johan petitions that, that God really wants, to, wants you to, to pray to him. He's your father, and he wants to hear what you want to say. And then it comes to this evening. Um, so we are speaking about the heavy one, and it is going to be confession. So getting into that, I'm going to start up us immediately and kind of taking us a little bit there. There's a bunch of papers on these tables, and I want us to distribute them with pens. Um, and what I want you to do is I want you to reflect a little bit on maybe your past week or something that's been bothering you, one of your, your sins. Um, and uh, don't write down you stole a sweetie, except if, if you really have a problem with stealing sweets. Uh, go that direction. But think... Think on um, what it, anything that you did and, and try to maybe trace that back to its cardinal root if, if, you, if you can. Lust or pride um, or, or just uh, laziness, sloth. So, yeah, think a little bit on that. I'm, I'm going to give us two minutes. Um, if you've been bad-mouthing anyone um, or you needed to, to feel justified that you... Um, that you are the righteous person in a situation. Any, anything that you can think on. Um, if you've been looking at things you shouldn't have or, or any, any such thing, I'm going to give us two minutes. Okay. Um, so now what I, I want you to do is I want you to fold that paper up as small as you can and... Um, then I, like as tightly as you can, like uh, make it a little hidden pocket. And then I want you to, to give it to the person next to you. <laughs> uh, now the question is, will they be able to look, look at it? And the answer is no. <laughs> but um, I should have left you a little bit there. Um, so, this exercise is, is maybe just to help us feel a little bit um, one of the consequences of, of sin, that we want to be hidden, that uh, there's things that maybe shouldn't be known by everyone, um, but this is, this is really one of the deep effects that has been so normal for us now as, as humans. So, I've got you invested. 
Um, this, this is our topic today, um, dealing, dealing with sin. So what, what do I want to do today? I want to equip us a little bit better. I want to start off by firstly going through some of the, what the Bible teaches us about confession. And then from there, I want to reflect a little bit deeper on how sin actually affects us um, and, and go, go slowly through those paces. And then how Jesus deals with it, not just, okay, there's a cross and, and it's dealt with, but um, what is the emotion that, that Christ goes through um, in dealing with this. And then at the end, I want to just speak on, quickly on what is a mature community, a mature, a mature church. So, so let's get cracking. The, the first thing that we know in Scripture is uh, oh, it's, it's always a great idea to go to Jesus. And um, Jesus says um, that he teaches us to pray, that we need to ask to forgive our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And this is a, a common prayer. This, is, this has to do with our everyday life. Um, we, we go back to confession. So Jesus commands this. In 1 John 1 verse 9, we read, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So confession is the application of the gospel for salvation. What does, what does that mean? Um, it means that the way we actually are saved is by confessing. And um, we, we'll get to that in, in a second, or, I, well, we're there. Um, the thing is, you, you'd say, well, Gior, I, I'm a Christian. I've, um, I've, I've given my life to Christ, and so I'm saved. But the Bible views salvation as, as both an event and a process. And we can hear this from Paul. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And the one way Jesus gives us access to becoming more and more um, Christ-like, to, to being saved deeper and deeper, is by this gift and this um, discipline of confession. Okay, so the next thing is, so we need to confess. To whom do, do we need to confess? Well, we as Protestants know this very well. We, we know that there is only one mediator um, between God and men, and that is the man, Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 2 verse 5. But it is actually a little bit more complicated than that. If we, if we read James 5 verse 16, it says, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And this kind of matches with something else that Jesus says in, in Matthew 18 from verse 92 to 20. He says, where two of more are, are, are gathered in my name and ask anything that I will do. So uh, there is this, this part that works out that confession is, is a communal act. And this is something I only recently learned uh, well, in, in my research for this is that the, the church um, in the early days was, it, it was a much bigger practice to have confession in, in a communal aspect, in a communal setting. Um, we, it's only through the Middle Ages and then with the Reformation that it became much more private and, and a personal thing, that, that we pray in private. So 
I would expect some kickback. I have kickback against a lot of this. But, but let's listen to what a few people have to say about this. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he writes, he who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. Uh, Bonhoeffer further writes, he says, that God gives us certainty that we are dealing with the living God through our brother. Um, it's this idea that your brother comes in the place of Christ and reflects Christ for us. Um, Martin Luther, um, this, is, this is just one step back, but he said that the Christian way is essentially it consists of acknowledging ourselves as being sinners and then um, praying for grace. So um, that, that just links that we, we need to know that we are sinners um, and not, not try to hide that. So another way we can maybe look at this is that Failure to confess sin to others is, in essence, a failure of integrity. Um, think about this. Um, Tim Keller, he, he, he quotes Calvin on this, and he says, until we fully acknowledge the, the chaos within us, that the Bible, what the Bible calls sins, we live in what Calvin calls unreality. So counselors will tell you that the only character flaws that can really destroy you is the ones that, were, that you won't admit. Um, so crucial to true prayer is then confession and repentance. So, but what I love here is the word that Calvin uses, unreality. It is the superficiality that we might come to with God, that we speak to him, but it does not match what is going on in our day-to-day -day lives. And, and so a confession, a confessional life is actually... Um, dealing with reality, dealing with, with people in and around you, bringing those two realities together. Our, our society is, is a little bit upside down with this. We do quite the opposite. What we, what we rather tend to do is hide ourselves. We have, um, we have platforms to do that for us, Facebook, and we put up all our best pictures on Instagram, and then we compare those, those pictures um, and, and that idea of ourselves to, to others' ideas of ourselves. And we know it's fake, but we still believe it. Uh, those base parts of other people that we see. Um, we're also in an individualistic culture where we think you have to deal with everything yourself. It's your responsibility, and, and you should, should find the solution. In another sense, we're also in a, a cancel culture. So... If you've done anything wrong and it comes out, you might be cancelled. Um, but this is, this is not the way of the church. This, this is not the way things should be. So that is just a, a baseline for us to, to start thinking on confession. Um, that we have to confess that this is actually part of our um, sanctification and salvation process. And that we have to confess to others. So I want to take us now to how does sin affect us? Uh, how, what, what is this thing, sin, that we call, uh, well, what we call sin in life? Um, so G.K. Chesterton, he wrote in his seminal work, Orthodoxy, he, he wrote that sin is the only part of Christian theology that can really be proved. Two years later, after that statement, uh, Chesterton published another book, um, and it was titled, What is Wrong with the World? 
and the year was 1910, and there was plenty of talk of, of social progress in the West, and he wanted to add his own voice to that discussion. And what I find so interesting is that is exactly what we kind of have in our day and age. There's a lot of talk about what is wrong with the world and how we are supposed to fix that. Who, who should, should pay, who should do what. So in summary, how he addressed this, he said, Chesterton, he said, you're after the right things, but you're ignoring a key part of the diagnosis. What is wrong with the world? Um, that was the question, and his answer was simply, I am wrong. I am what's wrong with the world. The world doesn't get sorted out unless I do. And this idea isn't just some, some Christian idea. They're, they're, it, it, it's not a primitive or a conservative idea only. Uh, Freud, Plato, Martin Luther King Jr., Gandhi, and Jesus um, all had moments where they pointed to the individual and the individual taking responsibility, the individual who is a cause um, for, for what is wrong in the world. So the difference in philosophies and religion often comes down to the vocabulary used to describe the world's brokenness and the way this brokenness gets mended. Sin is the precise point where historical eras, cultures, and philosophies are all in agreement. Um, we all kind of know something's out, something's wrong. So how did it start? Where, where, where do we go to, to find this? And of course, scripture, the beginning, the, the opening pages of, of the Bible. And what we find is man and woman, and they are described as naked and unashamed, uh, a world that seems very foreign to us and it is described as, as foreign. This idea of, of nakedness isn't just f a physical nudity, uh, a hippie liberation that's, uh, that, that's just fun. It, it's about more than that. It's about the state of their souls. If we flip that first page of scripture, uh, something I think that many of has done, um, we, we find quickly that there's something that happens, sin enters the world, and we have what we call the fall. Now, what is interesting is that many people, I, I speak to a lot of my atheist friends, and they don't have necessarily such a, a problem with acknowledging that there might be a God, or that there, is, uh, they, there even is a God, this, this first movement, uh, something behind everything. Um, and there might even be some prayers uh, that goes up to this God. One of my friends asked me to pray even though he doesn't believe in God. Um, uh, so that, I find that quite interesting. So they like this idea of, the, of a God, but the problem is not, not quite that with us. The real hang-up is rather that we don't trust this God. We don't, we don't want him to tell us what to do. So even in, in today, our, our post-enlightenment, uh, we're in a highly skeptical society bent on deconstruction. But it is interesting that most of us still really believe that there is this God. And this idea of us not trusting, that is a, a very, um, it, it is exactly what happened with Adam and Eve. They started to suspect that God was holding out on them, that, that he hid something from them. 
So they plucked the forbidden fruit in an attempt to get a full, abundant, happy life apart from God. That's our story. They trusted themselves, not the God they believed in. And that is what the Bible calls sin. It is good desire channeled through the wrong means. Sin is shorthand for any attempt to meet our deep needs by our own resources. The, the human response to sin is to hide. This is something we're all very good with. So right away, this is what we see Adam and Eve do. They realize that they are naked and they sow fig leaves and they go and hide. And when they hear God's footsteps approaching, they, they hid from God in a bush. So they quickly went from naked and unashamed, instantly they became covered and ashamed. So what happens? God sees them hiding, and um, it's, it's quite funny because uh, it's a tough guy to play hide and seek with. Um, but uh, he sees them, and how does he engage them? He asks two questions. He asks, where are you? That's the first question. And there's a long interpretive tradition in, in Judaism and Christianity that this was actually an invitation for confession. But Adam and Eve does not take this. And so he goes on to the second question. Who told you that you were naked? Said in another way, God is asking, who stole my children's innocence? So this observation is paramount and it is frequently misconstrued. Um, sin is defined by, by this, at least in this, this, this section, the biblical imagination here describes it as primarily not an, as an accusation or a condemnation. It is first a, a diagnosis. It is a trip to the doctor's office. God is, is asking them, do you know what happened to you? Do you know what the consequences will be of this that, has just, uh, that, that you have just done? So the trouble is that, that sin becomes this disease and it gets in the way of doing what we were meant to do, to, to become what we were meant to be as humans to live free, healthy lives using our bodies according to their design. One of the main issues is it inhibits us from doing what we were made to do, and that is to love, to, to give love and to receive love. So how does this interfere with love? Eugene Peterson, he defines it. He says, sin is a refused relationship with God that spills over into wrong relationships with others. Sin is always personal, it is always against God. The way our sins hurt others is collateral of that first refusal. And this is as David said it. He said, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. The idea is that we do not just sin against a rule. Love is always relational. So the impact that it has is not just a, a bookkeeping of, of what you did wrong. We don't sin against a law, we sin against our Father. And so your sins are never in isolation, they always affect other people. It's not something that we control in our hiddenness. Some way or another, it affects the person next to you. 
So back to our story in, in Genesis 3. The heartbreaking scene ends with Adam and Eve um, being set out of the garden and the garden being guarded with a, a cherubim and a flaming sword. And uh, I've, I've tried to look, but uh, it's not there anymore. Google doesn't have the pictures. It's, it's gone. So the thing is, God didn't compromise on holiness, but he also didn't just leave Adam and Eve. He went with them out into the garden. God pursues them. And, and this is actually the picture that we, we kind of see throughout the rest of Scripture. Uh, we, we have a God that is a pursuing God. Um, and in the rest of the 66 books of the Bible, um, this, is, this is basically what happens. There's good news and bad news. The good news is that we are loved. We are loved um, right now without qualification or restriction by means of the gospel. God made a way. We are loved unconditionally, just as you are, for who you are. You are loved in a way that you cannot lose. The bad news is that we find it very hard to believe this, and we find it even harder to experience it, that God um, actually loves us and seeks the best for us and wants to bring us back. So what becomes our instinct? Our instinct becomes to forever try and, and do better. I, I think this is a major part of, of the Christian, uh, even in, within Christianity, this is the layers that we, we go through. We, we drum up what is our own lovableness. We, we try to be more lovable um, to everyone and ourselves. And we try to define ourselves and try to control to try and become in our eyes, what we are already in God's eyes. And this, this matches very much that with the idea that God died for us while we were still sinners. Um, he loves us even though we are sinners. We are former sinners. So this is the diagnosis. You, you're trying to hide. Um, this, this is a default of your nature. So how does God deal with this? When we know there is this, this, this cross, we have the theology down, but I think we need to feel a bit of it. Um, it needs to be visceral. Hebrews 4 verse 15 says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize, uh, I want to say emphasize, but that's, that's the wrong word, uh, empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. The Greek word here for em empathize is a compound word, sympathio, and uh, someone else can cr correct my, my Greek pronunciation, but it is, is, is pashu, pashu, and it means to suffer, and then there's the prefix sun, which means with or to co-suffer. God suffers with us. God suffers with humanity. He suffers with us um, in the consequences of our thoughts and our actions and our dis uh, disordered desires. He suffers the subtle agony of hiding and pretending and presenting a preferred self that traps us in perpetual insecurity. 
he suffers the estrangement from God we willfully choose by managing a sin pattern we've grown tired of confessing rather than bringing it into the light of his inexhaustible love. God suffers with us. And this is one of the things I think that we don't always understand. There's layers to, um, to God when, when God starts to feel, feel far. And, and so one thing we have, our in, uh, intuitive assumption, is that we are closest to God when things are going well. Jesus is by our side, present and helping when I'm living wisely and virtuously, keeping in step with his mission in me and in the world. This is kind of the question that I always ask in a cell group, right? It's how's it going with you spiritually? No, well, me and God, we're, we're, we're great. And then happen, happen to something triggers you, and suddenly you're back where you were at. Your old, um, old habits, they, they show themselves again. Your, your anger for people, it, it shows itself again. And, and you seem not to be able to control it, and suddenly we feel very far from God. But the thing here is that the author of, of Hebrews, he says the opposite. He says Jesus is nearest to us in our weakness, not our strengths. Our hearts are corrupted by sin. And what that does is it, it's like the poles of a magnet that pushes away God in every sense, even when we tell ourselves um, well, it's going well with, with me and God. Much of that might be a farce. Much of that might, might be shallow. Our default nature in, in sin is we're pushing away the grace of God. But Jesus has an uncorrupted heart, and his heart works exactly the opposite way. He is drawn to our sin, um, not in an intellectually or... Uh, or like a mathematician who has worked out the equation in a thousand different ways and knows that grace is the only solution that satisfies all the variables. It's more instinctual for him. He knows, this, he knows how deep we're in and how incapable we are of saving ourselves. And so what does he do? He reaches to us at that, that moment when we are broken, when we have nothing else, when we've come to the end of ourselves. Um, when suddenly there's a flicker that we are reminded that, oh, maybe I'm not that okay. Maybe there's still some things that I still need to figure out. God steps into that place, and then right there, he, he, offers, he, he offers us healing. One of the, the names um, that's thrown out for Jesus is the great physician. But a doctor can't heal you without an accurate diagnosis. So if you show up to, to a great doctor and describe yourself as, I'm generally sick, um, and, but I, I'm kind of okay, then, um, then he's not going to be able to do, do a lot for you. To confess is to say that I, I want to name the symptoms completely and comprehensively because I want to be healed completely and comprehensively. So this is, this is why God calls us to confession. Now, this is, of course, very heavy for us to, to try and think through. And one, one other thing I think we, we need to realize is that God isn't out to, to scar you or hurt you. He's there to, to give you abundance and a full life. We, we know these words, but we struggle with it. Listen to um, 
what a Presbyterian uh, a pastor has to say, um, Dane Ortland. He says, if you are in Christ, you have a friend who in your sorrow will never lob down a pep talk from heaven. He cannot hear, uh, he cannot bear to hold himself at a distance. Nothing can hold him back. His heart is too bound up with yours. Eugene Peterson, he says this, God does not deal with sin by ridding our lives of it as if it were a germ or mice in an attic. God does not deal with sin by amputation as if it were a gangrenous leg, leaving us crippled and holiness on a crutch. Uh, this word really caught me. It says, God deals with sin by forgiving us, and when he forgives us, there is more of us, not less. When you come to forgiveness, you are restored to become more human, not less. So David really wanted the presence of God. He wanted it more than anything. Um, but it, that meant that he washed himself in God's holiness. He confronted God. And at the same time, he was confronted by his own fallenness. So if it's the presence of, of God that you are looking for, if you're really looking for God, then confession is part of the deal. We need to, to come to confession. So I throw, throw out David for a reason, and, and the reason is this. David discovered that, um, that in confession there is great healing power, um, that forgiveness is found in confession. And the way he played this out is he wrote a bunch of psalms. He is basically the Taylor Swift of the Old Testament. <laughs> okay, maybe Taylor Swift's not your, your person. But um, um, he, 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 he turned it into celebration. But an interesting thing that you'll find with David is that in almost all of those psalms, he, he wrote pieces that if there was a good record producer, he would have written them out because he exposed himself. To God. David was not afraid to show himself to God. And he knew the victory in this. So we, we read in Psalm 139, verse 22, you have searched me, O Lord, and you know me. He, he seeks that, that uh, well, it, it, the, the psalm opens with that and it ends with that. He's asking God to look into his soul and expose to him and teach him the right way. So confession is a, a terrifying gift, and it is a contradiction because it just is. It's terrifying, but it is this gift. The alternative to hiding is the refusal to hide. The terrifying insistence on exposing ourselves to God, that is the only way to open ourselves to unconditional love. If, you've, if we ever wonder, if we think on David, uh, on his tombstone is basically written, Man after God's own heart. That's a nice little line on his tombstone. But if we read his biography, there, there is, it, it, it doesn't read too well. He was a liar, a manipulator, an adulterer, maybe a rapist, depending on how we weigh the evidence, and a murderer. And, and yet we find this line, a man after God's own heart. Um, so what made this to be the case? And it is only this. The Psalms he authored were peppered with personal confession, confessions. Honest, unfaltered, raw nakedness before God. 
So David was a long, long way from perfection, just as all of us. But he refused to eyes. When he realized that he was naked, he did not pick up fig leaves to cover himself. He, he ran to the Father. Okay, so we got this far. I, I have one more analogy that speaks on how this plays out for us in maturity in a church. In the, in the near middle, uh, uh, well, the, the near eastern world uh, where the Bible er emerged from, we have this um, successive cultures that always built cities on the, the ruins of the old cities. They didn't um, try to lay new foundations. It's much easier just to burn the old place down and, and build on top of it. Um, it's probably also a good idea for where these cities were located. Um, and what we find today is when archaeology is done, then they dig down and then they find a culture underneath a culture, um, underneath a culture. They find, it's almost like dusting off and you find a story underneath another story, underneath another story. Confession um, is this, it is to excavate down into the layers of your life and covering not just what is obvious on the surface, but the layers of our personal history underneath that continue to inform your present. One of the biggest mistakes that we've made in, in the modern church is to reimagine spiritual maturity as a need for, uh, to confess less. The unspoken assumption is, as I ascend in relationship with God, I confess less because I have less to confess. True spiritual maturity, though, is the opposite. It's not an ascension, it's an archaeological dig. As we discover layer after layer of what was in us all along, spiritual maturity means more confession, not less. Maturity is discovering the depth of my personal brand of fallenness and the depth to, to which God's grace is really, has really penetrated, even without me knowing it. So the desperate need of our time, maybe the desperate need of, of all, all times, is not to have successful Christians. It is not to have um, popular Christians or winsome Christians. It is to have deep Christians. And the only way to become a deep Christian is through the inner excavation of confession. When it comes to the church, um, a maturing community is a confessing community, not a, a, a church without sin, but a church without secrets. So one of the faults that we have in ourselves is that we, we think everyone to be a saint, but the more it is more true that we are all sinners. And, and, and th th it is with that heart that we should actually enter into confession with one another. When we come in um, and out of God's presence in gathered communities with our deepest needs and secrets hidden, we are essentially say, saying Jesus' victory is not enough. That we are struggling to believe that Jesus really did this, that there is freedom um, in our confessions. We say we believe in grace, but confession is how we actually trust that we are, that, that we already believe in it. 
the very parts of our stories we most want to edit or erase altogether become the very parts of our stories we've, uh, we'll never take back and never stop telling. That's the kind of author God is. So our lives become more and more into the light. Brendan Manning is my last quote. He wrote, Anyone God uses significantly is always deeply wounded. We are each and every one of us insignificant people whom God has called and graced to use in a significant way. On the last day, Jesus will look us over, not for medals, diplomas, or honors, but for scars. It is not by our gifts, insights, ideas, or qualifications that God has determined to heal the world, but by our scars. By his wounds, we are healed, and by our wounds, the healing is shared. Uh, I want to pray for us. Father, I, I ask that you convict us of our, of our sins, that you, that you remind us that we aren't as free as we, we always think. I ask you to search our hearts and that you show us if there's anything that we, that we need to repent. Help us be a community that does not, that does not, that does not bear secrets. Father, I, I ask that you, you help us to think about the things that we wrote down. I want to thank you that you are a pursuing God, that, that you are always love, and that the end of this is never brokenness, but, but beauty and healing, and to be known by one another and still to be loved. I, I pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.